In the past few weeks, we've been looking at what's been termed the atheist-making passages of the Bible. These are the parts of the Bible we've discussed that atheists say will make you realize that God is not real. The parts of the Bible, they say, will turn you away from God, not bring you closer to him. The atheist claims that as Christians, we are fools to believe in God. In fact, we're told often that it's the Bible itself that shows how foolish it is to believe in and worship God. We've been looking particularly at this statement that atheist and famed magician Penn Jillette said on YouTube about 10 years ago. Gillette claims to have read the entire Bible, and he says that reading the Bible solidified his atheism. And he said, and I've read this quote, but I'll read it again tonight. When you see Lot's daughter gang raped and beaten and the Lord being okay with that. When you read about Abraham being, being willing to kill his own son. When you read the insanity of the talking snake. When you read the hostility toward homosexuals, toward women. The celebration of slavery. When you read in context, thou shall not kill, which means only in your own tribe. I mean, there's no hint that it means humanity in general. That there's no sense of shared humanity. It's all tribal. When you see a God that is jealous and insecure, when you see that there's contradictions that show it was clearly written hundreds of years after the supposed fact and full of contradictions. Now, so far we've looked at a statement that God condoned Lot's actions toward his daughters. But we saw in Genesis 22 that that's false. God actually protected Lot's daughters. And we learned that in the story of Lot, God is revealing to mankind that salvation comes by faith, not through our own righteousness. And we learn of the danger of allowing the world to influence us as followers of God. Then we looked at God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his own son Isaac in Genesis 12. And we saw that God had every right to issue this command. And yet God in no way was going to allow Isaac to be harmed. God used that situation to teach Abraham to have absolute trust in God, a lesson that God still teaches us today. Are we willing to surrender everything in our lives to God? Are we even willing to give up the most precious Isaacs in our lives to God? Will we trust God absolutely? Finally, last week, we looked at the statement that God is not worthy of our belief in worship because he's a jealous God. And because he's a jealous God, that must mean that he's an insecure God. But we learned that there's a big difference in the Bible between worldly jealousy, which is a sin based on covetousness, and godly jealousy, which is when you and I steal the worship and adoration and praise that rightfully belongs to God, and we give it to false gods in our lives. So yes, God is very much a jealous God, and it's precisely his jealousy which makes him worthy of our worship. Would you want to worship a God that didn't care if you were unfaithful to him? Tonight, we'll look at Gillette's last statement, that the Bible is full of contradictions. This is an idea and a belief that is very popular amongst non-believers, atheists and, and, and theists alike. Author Jim Goad said of the Bible, a long, long time ago, I used to be a Christian. Then again, I also used to believe in Santa Claus. The thing that primarily killed my faith is that I read enough of the Bible to realize that it teemed with contradictions and thus couldn't possibly have been divinely inspired. Now, as believers, as Orthodox Christians, we believe 
that the Bible is inspired. It is God-breathed. It was written by man under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminated the minds of its authors. We also believe that the Holy Bible is infallible, meaning it is totally trustworthy. We also believe that the Bible is inerrant. That means that it is without error. So, if we can find contradictions and errors in the Bible, then that would mean that the Bible is not inerrant, that it does have errors, which means then that it's not trustworthy. It's no longer infallible. And an untrustworthy Bible filled with errors means it couldn't possibly have been inspired by God. So then it's not inspired, which means then that either God isn't real Or if he is, the Bible isn't his book. The Bible then just becomes a tale or an old book full of tales and and fairy stories. Now, we could probably do a whole series on supposed contradictions in the Bible. In fact, I would be interested to know if you are aware of any contradictions that you've ever had to deal with in your walk as a Christian. Maybe we can explore those topics in future messages. But tonight, I would like to focus on the supposed inconsistency between the Old Testament teaching of an eye for an eye and the New Testament teaching of Jesus to turn the other cheek. This seems to be a very popular example that atheists will bring to us to say that this proves that the Bible has contradiction and error. They'll tell us there is either a contradiction or it proves that God changed his mind that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God of the New Testament. Now, the two passages that are referenced here are from Exodus 21 and Matthew 5. So let's begin by looking at Exodus 21. I'll look at Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25. It says, The punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. So if we look at Exodus 21, at this passage in context, we find that earlier in Exodus chapter 18, God has already established the judicial system for ancient Israel. Exodus chapter 18 is when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, goes and visits. And he sees that Moses is overwhelmed by the responsibility of trying to lead all of these people by himself. So Jethro suggests, wisely, that honest men be appointed as leaders to help deal with all the civil issues of the nation. And he says in Exodus 18.22, They should always be available to solve the people's common disputes, but have them bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. So these leaders were to be appointed and they were to act as judges. They were to hear the cases that were brought by the people, all of the issues. We're talking, you know, millions of people here. All of the personal issues and crimes and all of that of trying to run this nation. And these judges were to also issue judgment. So once we get to Exodus chapter 21, we're now looking at the civil law of ancient Israel. In Exodus 21, God is providing the guidance to these judges on how to issue judgment on violations of the Mosaic law. 
Now, this portion of Exodus is referred to as lex talionis. It's part of the Mosaic law dealing with personal injury. And as you read through Exodus 21, you basically see that this chapter is focused on making sure that the the punishment for a crime accurately matches the crime. The punishment for a specific crime should neither have been too lenient or too harsh. The specific crime that is being addressed here in this passage in Exodus 21 is an example of two men are fighting and one accidentally strikes a pregnant woman, causing her to give birth prematurely. Now, if the baby is born unharmed, man only has to pay some compensation to the husband. But if the baby was injured, then the punishment had to match the level of injury. And that's where we get the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Lex talionis was used as a guiding principle for the judges that were appointed back in Exodus chapter 18. As they were listening to all of these dozens and dozens of cases, and you can imagine all sorts of cases brought against each other. And then they had to determine the appropriate punishment for the crimes. Now, as you research this, you'll see that scholars are in agreement that this verse, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was not intended to be implemented literally. It is a figurative, not a literal statement. What you see in the Old Testament, and even in the time of Jesus, is that capital crimes in Israel, yes, were punished by execution. But crimes that resulted in personal injury generally required compensation in the payment of goods. So we could summarize the concept of an eye for an eye as God ensuring that justice in Israel was to be as fair and equitable as possible. Now, the problem with Lex Talionis is by the time we get to the New Testament, we see that the Pharisees have extended the concept to not just civil disputes, but they're also using this concept when dealing with personal relationships. The day or the teaching of that day was that if someone disgraced you, insulted you, shamed you, dishonored you, hurt you, you hurt them back. And they would use the Old Testament law to justify their retaliation. But their application of lex talionis is, in personal slights, we see is wrong. The Mosaic law makes clear that regarding personal slights, love and forgiveness is what God intends. We see this back in the Mosaic law in Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In fact, what we find in this verse is the whole intent of the law. Love. As Jesus tells us, the greatest part of the law, the greatest way we follow the law is not to focus on ourselves, but it's to focus on others and to focus on God. That's what matters. In Matthew 22, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. 
So the concept of an eye for an eye as laid out in Exodus 21, was never intended by God to justify personal vigilantism or executing personal vengeance. It was to be used by the governing authorities to ensure that Israel had a just and functioning society. Now let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5. If you look at verse 38 through 39, he says, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. So where is Jesus saying this? Well, if you look at the context, you'll see that this comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is not talking about civil law here. He's not discussing legal precedents on making sure that the punishment fits the crime. He's talking about personal vengeance. He's teaching us how the true follower of God is to respond to personal attacks. Now, at first glance, if you read this passage, just this passage alone out of context, it does appear as if Jesus is contradicting or nullifying the legal precedents from Exodus 21. But we know this is not true, because if you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus specifically tells us he did not come to nullify any of the law. In fact, in Matthew 5.17, he says, 5.17, he said, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And what is the purpose of the law? Well, as we saw earlier, it has to do with love and forgiveness. The law shows us our sinfulness and our separation from God. The law shows us our inability to make ourselves right before God. The law shows us that the only hope we have is that God in his love do something to save us. So Jesus comes and he says, I am going to accomplish this purpose. So what is Jesus getting at here? Well, when you look at the statement, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. And you look at it in context of the entire Sermon on the Mount, what you find is that Jesus is not talking about legal precedents. He's talking about interpersonal relationships. Notice what he says right after he says, turn the other cheek. In verse 41, he says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, Carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now think about this political situation. The Jews hated being ruled by the Romans. And the Romans hated the Jews. They looked at them, looked down on them as second-class citizens. And this hatred would boil over in a few decades after Jesus' resurrection when the Jews would revolt against Rome and the Roman army would come in there, destroy the temple, and crush the rebellion. Now, there was a Roman law that a Roman soldier could require the common citizen to carry his pack for up to a mile. So you could be a Jew out in the morning, on your way to work, running your errands, dropping the kids off at school, minding your own business, and a soldier could come along, grab you, and take you away from your responsibilities, make you carry his heavy pack a mile down the road. And then you'd have to walk a mile back in order to resume your interrupted activities and day. Now imagine how humiliating, how how degrading that would be. 
especially if you're someone like one of the Pharisees or the scribes, one of these educated men, to be grabbed by a common soldier and told to carry the pack for a mile. Imagine being treated this way. It may, you may be tempted to hate that Roman soldier. You may even want to extract a little personal vengeance against that person, at least in your heart. But Jesus is saying, no, this is not at all the purpose or the intent of the law. The law comes from a loving and forgiving father. And thus we are expected to show not vengeance, but we're to show love and the forgiveness of our father. And what better way is when a, a hated Roman soldier, whom you probably know hates you just as much because you're Jewish, forces you to carry his pack, and instead of glaring at him, instead of hating them, instead of making the experience as painful as possible for him, what if you offer to go a second mile for that soldier? It would blow the soldier's mind. It may cause that soldier to question and think everything he's thought about the Jews and, and this Jehovah God that they worship. One of the best ways we demonstrate God's love and forgiveness is not by seeking personal revenge and retribution. It's by seeking the exact opposite. Think about, you know, in our own lives, you can just, you know, think about a car wreck, for example. You're at a stoplight. You're rear-ended. You get a $15,000 worth of damage to your car. You're okay, just banged up a little bit, but just to be as a precaution, they decide to take you to the ER and check you out. So you miss a few hours of work, but everything's fine. You're a little sore, that's it. A few days later, your lawyer calls. He wants to make sure you get your $15,000 to get your car fixed. Well, that sounds reasonable, right? Just compensation, that sounds like it comes from Exodus 21, right? Then he says, hey, I wanna make sure you get reimbursed for your medical expenses, your ER visit, and missing those hours at work. Okay. That sounds, that sounds right. That sounds like that would come straight from Exodus 21. But then the lawyer says, but we're really going to sock it to this guy that rear-ended you. We're going to go for $10,000, $20,000 in pain and suffering. Now, even if it's legal for you to get $10,000 for pain and suffering, is it just compensation for the wreck? Or are you now moving into personal vengeance? As a Christian, do you go along with this or not? What I think you see in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is that this may be an opportunity to turn the other cheek. By declining to pursue pain and suffering, guess who's going to take notice? Probably the lawyer. Also, the defendant. And when the lawyer and the defendant are looking at you, why is this guy or girl doing this? This is your opportunity to be a light in the darkness. This is your opportunity to show the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Now, I'm not saying that you should not get a large settlement for some sort of accident or, you know, for pain and suffering. That's never justified. In fact, there are definitely situations where it is justified. This is just an example. But there is a line between compensation and legal precedence and personal vengeance. But let's look at this at a more personal level. A level. I'm guessing that probably in the next week or two, someone's going to come along and hurt you. Someone is going to slight you. Someone is going to snub you or insult you or belittle you or talk behind your back. Someone is going to do something to be unkind to you. And it's going to hurt your feelings. And it's going to make you angry. 
and there will be a temptation to get vengeance. Or at the very least, go to your friends and tell them about how horrible this person has treated you. But instead of seeking to punish the other person for their crime, maybe this is an opportunity to turn the other cheek. Yes, it's not fair when someone hurts us. Yes, it's not fair when people don't do what they're supposed to do. We end up doing more than our fair share. But guess what else is not fair? Jesus Christ being beaten and nailed on a cross for your sins and mine. That's definitely not fair. Oftentimes, we need to let the minor things slide. We need to learn to control our emotions instead of letting our emotions control us. We need to be less like the Pharisees who practice an eye for an eye in their personal relationships and swallow our pride and humble ourselves and become more like our Savior. When someone slaps us in the face, we need to learn to say no to the flesh and learn to say yes to the love and forgiveness of Christ and turn the other cheek. Punishment belongs in the courts. Forgiveness belongs in our hearts as reflected in our actions. Now, some may be thinking, well, I know that Jesus says turn the other cheek, but I'm not going to let someone walk all over me. I'm not going to let someone continually mistreat me. Now, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's not saying that we let people abuse us however they please. Now, I know that there are some out there that say Jesus here is teaching pacifism. But that's not at all what he's teaching. He's not teaching that we don't take action against our aggressors. He's not saying we can't take a stand against those who abuse us. But there's a big difference between someone insulting you, snubbing you, rejecting you, hurting your feelings, showing contempt to you, being rude to you, and someone abusing you. If someone is constantly or consistently hurting you, then yes, we need to take a stand. I mean, remember, the night that Jesus was arrested, he was brought before the high priest for questioning, and he was literally slapped in the face. Now, did he literally turn the other cheek? No. He challenged the one that hit him. It says in John 18, 22, the one of the then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Many have interpreted Jesus' teaching as pacifism, and he's teaching that we shouldn't defend ourselves. But when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he's speaking metaphorically. He's telling us that when personally attacked, we need to take the high road of humbleness and love and forgiveness and recognize that it's God's responsibility, not ours, to issue punishment. See, I think as Christians, we've, we've either misunderstood Jesus' teaching on turn the other cheek or we choose to ignore it. As mature Christians in a church that is striving to emulate Jesus Christ, it is imperative that we know the difference. Know the difference between the times when we should turn the other cheek and the times when we should pick up a sword and go to battle. Too often, though, the default reaction of the Christian when we're slapped in the face is to pick up the sword and go to battle. So, are the atheists right? 
Is there a contradiction between Exodus 21 and Matthew 5? At first glance, it may appear there is. But after just a couple minutes of study, you can see that there's really no contradiction here. See, the key to understanding this contradiction and pretty much any other contra or supposed contradictions in the Bible is to look at the verse or the verses in context. That means as Christians, we must take the time to study what is being said in the Bible, where it is being said in the Bible, who is saying it, and what are the circumstances in which the verse or passage is being said in. So as we conclude, I believe that it's very clear that the Old Testament civil law in Exodus 21 is in no way contradicting Jesus' teaching on personal vengeance and personal relationships in Matthew 5. In fact, I would argue that they're very much in harmony with each other. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful for this opportunity to study your word. We're so thankful that, you know, for, for, a, for a book that was written over thousands of years, on multiple continents, in multiple languages, by dozens of authors, the fact that we can't find any significant contradictions, to me, is an amazing fact that proves that the Bible is absolutely the inspired and inerrant and infallible Word of God. We're so thankful, God, that you have given us your Word, your Word that we can lean on each and every day as we go through this world as a means of communicating with you, Lord, is your word. And we're so thankful for it. Lord, we pray that as we study this contradiction, that you'll just search our hearts. Help us to look at Jesus' teaching. Help us to understand the difference between turning the other cheek and going to war. Are the things that we're going to war over worth it? Are we emulating you, Jesus, or are we imitating the Pharisees? Are we trying to live with vengeance in our hearts? But we're so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that, um, that you're with us every single moment, that you love us and forgive us. We pray, Lord, that this week that we will have loving and forgiving hearts toward others. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.